Good morning to each of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open our Bibles at Luke chapter 3. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we draw near to the throne of grace, draw near to a reconciled Father through the blood of the Lamb, draw near with confidence because we have a great priest over the house of God, draw near as people who have been cleansed and washed, people who have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, people who have been purchased not with gold and silver or such things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. Lord, we are dependent on you as children upon a father, dependent on you as an infant upon its mother. And we come and hide under the shadow of your wings. And pray that you would now quiet our hearts in troublesome times and help us to fix our attention on you through the Lord Jesus Christ, our God and our Saviour. Amen. It's almost despicable to me if I see a great a massive picture of a pastor and his wife on the a church's website or on some announcement board or uh, outside a church. You know, I almost get the idea that everything is about this pastor and the pastor's in the spotlight instead of Jesus being in the spotlight. Now in Luke 3, we see Jesus is in the spotlight. And John the Baptist doesn't mind just disappearing in the background. And that then is my theme also for this message in Luke 3, Luke 3 verse 15 to 22. The theme then, Jesus in the spotlight. So let us read the verses, Luke 3, verse 15. And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize with you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and the chaffy will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other words or other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been re reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So first of all we're going to look at John's testimony, and secondly at God's testimony. And this is all to emphasize the theme, Jesus in the spotlight. So John's testimony, that's in verse 15 to 20. To illustrate this, I want to tell you about Bruce. Bruce becomes very rich by using his company's equipment to gather an extra income for himself on the sideline. He's not actually allowed to use company equipment for this, but this is how he becomes filthy rich. And in the same way, many preachers, they abuse the gospel. Let's call it, quote-unquote, their company's tools. So they abuse the gospel to win a following for themselves. For themselves. And John the Baptist wasn't like this. So when people came up to John and said, are you the Messiah? John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. In verse 15 and 16, people questioning, are you here? Are you it? And he says, no, I'm not it. Even in John 1, they come, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet spoken of by Moses? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And John says, I am not. 
So, so for John, it's all about Jesus. It's not about himself. And that's why he says, the Messiah is greater than I. Basically in verse, verse 16. He says, no, no, I just baptized you with water. He's mightier than I. He's coming. The one mightier than I. In John chapter 1 also, the one who is mightier. He's greater than I. He ranks before me. Even though he was born after me, he ranks before me. And so to show that Jesus is greater than, than him, he says in verse 16, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. So in, in first century Jewish culture, you wore sandals and you walk on dusty roads and so your feet get dirty. And when you arrive at, your, at the visitors or the, the person you're going to visit, your host's house, uh, he wouldn't wash your feet. He wouldn't untie the strap of your sandal to wash your feet. Uh, a Jewish slave wouldn't even do that. Only a Gentile slave would do that. The lowest of the low. So what John is saying here, he says, I'm lower than the lowest of the low. I'm lower in comparison to Christ. I'm nothing. And I think if we knew, if we knew Jesus as John knew him, as John understood this little bit at least, we would have said the same. We would have realized without Jesus, we are nothing. We have nothing. We can do nothing. Jesus taught us that in John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. Paul wrote, what do you have that you did not receive? So everything we have, we have received of God. And if we do not humble ourselves like John did here, then God will humble us. Because he resists the proud. And he will humble the proud. And so it's much better for us then to, to take this attitude of John the Baptist. Take it on ourselves. Take it upon ourselves and follow his attitude toward the Christ, the Messiah. Because he realized in verse 16, he says, I, I merely baptize you with water. When the Messiah comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does that mean? And when does it happen? Well, for the apostles, that happened, well, a short period after their conversion. Maybe three years, maybe two years after they were converted, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. And so they were already converted, they were already saved, and then only some years later, they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, they didn't need the Holy Spirit to be with them all the time, because Jesus was with them. And that's fine, it's, He's Emmanuel, God with us. And so when Jesus left, He sent the Holy Spirit to be with them. But now Jesus is not with us in the flesh anymore. He's not with us in his body. And so he sends the Holy Spirit. The moment you and I are converted, he gives us his Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to him. So he sends the Spirit and you are baptized in one spirit into one body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Or in Titus chapter 3, <clears throat> in verse 5 and 6. This is what Paul writes. He says, uh, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, Jesus, poured, or of God, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the moment you are born again, the Spirit is poured out upon you and you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. But... This does not happen only once. You do not only receive the Spirit once and that's it. You could, you must, you should be filled with the Spirit continually. Continually. How much more will your Heavenly Father not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Or in Acts chapter 2, they are filled with the Spirit. So the Spirit is poured out. They're baptized with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. And then again in Acts 4 verse 31, there many of the same people there, also in Jerusalem, believers, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the place where they pray together was shaken. And they all go out and continue to preach the Word of God with boldness. Ephesians 5 verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5 verse 16 and verse 25 it says we must live by the Spirit. We must walk by the Spirit. Or we do live by the Spirit, therefore walk by the Spirit. So your daily life in the Spirit and constant being filled with the Spirit 
fresh outpourings of the Spirit at times in the Christian life. Because you see, it's the Holy Spirit we need. It's the Spirit and what He comes to do. One of the things at least is it's the Spirit that empowers us to spread the Gospel. Uh, Jesus told the, the apostles that they should not leave Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. And that obviously would be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit in Luke 24, 49. And then we see it in Acts um, that they, they will receive power and they will be, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they will be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So if we do not do this, if we do not spread the gospel like that, in the power of this Spirit, when Christ baptizes us with a Spirit, well, if we, we do not go out evangelizing and we focus on our little church, our little congregation, well, then God will withdraw this power. He will withdraw the power we need for evangelism because, in fact, we are not evangelizing at all. And so... So what will happen then if he withdraws this power and a sense of the Spirit's presence? Well, then all the good we have received in this church over the past two years and enjoyed over the past two years, well, that will be something of the past. So I want to, I want to encourage our congregation, or you're listening to this sermon, you're part of another church, I want to encourage us to keep on with our outreaches. Uh, we are... We are retaking our outreach at Mess after the December break. We're picking it up coming Saturday at 8.30. We'll meet at the church, or at least 20 past 8, and then we'll go to Mess, to the homeless shelter, and continue our evangelism and discipleship. Well, let's continue supporting missionaries. Let us continue praying for missionaries, also on Sundays, with our PowerPoint slides, praying through persecuted countries or perhaps unreached people groups. Let us keep on sharing with unbelievers the good news, the gospel, where you move, sharing your testimonies, sharing how God saved you and working the gospel into it. And if, if that evangelistic flame in your heart has grown cold, fanning to flame, fanning to flame that evangelistic fire, as Paul said to Timothy, Banning to flame the gift that is in you. And by doing so, by sharing the gospel with others then, you're not only refreshing others, you're refreshing yourself. Yourself. He who waters will himself be watered. You refresh others, you'll be refreshed. Proverbs 11.25, go and read that. You see, if we start navel-gazing, we start focusing in us. On ourselves, we start turning in upon ourselves, so everything is the focus is on ourselves. Then the danger exists that Jesus will not baptize us with a spirit but with fire. Verse 16. Now, on the one hand, that can mean that He puts us in the fiery furnace or in what would we call it? If you put gold in this furnace, yes. So he'll put us into the furnace of discipline to purify us of our sins, like in Malachi 3, verse 2 and 3, where the Lord puts his people in the furnace to melt the silver and take out the impurities and to discipline his people to remove the impurity of sin. And so in other words, what Luke then is saying in this passage, if that's what it means, what he's saying then is, John is saying, I just give you... I'm just giving you the sign of purification, baptism. But he will actually do the purification. He will purify your heart. The baptism not of water, but of fire. Or, on the other hand, and I think this is a more likely interpretation, on the other hand, this might mean, this might refer to the, the fiery baptism of hell. Because of the context, because in verse 16 he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, he's talking to the whole group listening. Some of you then baptized with the Spirit, but those who won't repent, you'll be baptized with fire. And that means hell. Verse 17, he's winning for, winnowing forks in his hand to clear the threshing floor. Gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptism of fire. 
or in verse 9, the axe, the, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's judgment. The fire's of judgment. So the way for us to escape the fire of judgment, the baptism of fire, the fires of hell, is to believe in Jesus Christ, to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, because Jesus then, in our place, is the one who took that baptism of fire upon himself when he died on the cross. And he even refers to his death as a baptism of fire. Luke 12 verse 49 and 50. I've come to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now remember he has, he's already been baptized in water. This is speaking of a great baptism of fire upon himself. He says how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So Jesus takes the baptism of Fire in the place of all who believe in him, so we can escape the baptism of fire. And until I breathe my last, may God give me grace, may God give me strength, and by the will of the Lord, I will keep on pleading with you. I will keep on calling and calling you to repentance and encouraging you repent, turn to the Lord. Call upon his name. And the reason I will keep on doing this is because I know that some people in our own congregation, you are not saved yet. You are not yet saved and your life proves it. And some of you even listening to this recording, you are not yet saved. And it's evident in your life. And I'll keep on pleading. Because many people, they are so irresponsible with eternity. They are so irresponsible and reckless with their own souls. And your pastor cares more for your soul than you do. And if you won't pray for your own salvation, if you won't weep, if you won't sigh for your own salvation, then I will. And above all, I will keep on pleading with you. Because Jesus has created you. And you owe your very life blood to him. You owe your life to Christ. I will keep on pleading because Jesus is worthy of your salvation, of, of your worship. Jesus is worthy of it that you would love him and know him and worship him. And if you ignore this plea, then verse 17 goes for you, as it went for the Jews in the first century. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that's the picture of a farmer, a wheat farmer. And he, he goes and he harvests his wheat and he takes it to the threshing floor and it's threshed out. The oxen just walk over the threshing floor and so what happens is the grain and the chaff gets separated and then the farmer goes and he takes his winnowing fork almost like a kind of a pitchfork a hay fork and he'll toss this this mix up into the into the air and the wind will blow and the chaff is very light and the chaff will blow away and <clears throat> the wheat will fall back to the ground because it's too heavy to be blown away by the wind. And then he'll gather all the wheat together, the grain, put it in his barn, and then the chaff he'll gather and he'll burn it in fire, with fire. And that's exactly how the coming of the Messiah is. And the Messiah, what he will do, he's the farmer. <coughs> he will separate the righteous and the wicked. He will take the righteous like grain and put them in his heavenly barn and he will take the wicked and he will burn them with fire it says in verse 17 that's a picture we find in in a number of verses in scripture he will burn them with his fire like chaff malachi 4 verse 1 or matthew 13 verse 30 he'll burn the the weeds or psalm 1 verse 4 35 verse 5 and, and they don't burn up they don't burn up like chaff does because it's an unquenchable fire, it says. 
Or some other verses in the Bible says it's an eternal fire. Matthew 25, 41 and 46. Or, or Mark 9, verse 40, 48. Or Revelation 14, verse 10 and 11. The smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever. Day and night they have no rest. They keep on burning. And some people think, oh, that's just stories. It's just old people's stories. People who lived before, they, uh, before the era of science. They don't understand things. That's just to scare children. These stories of an unquenchable fire. The stories of hell. Well, according to Scripture, it's a reality. It's a reality. And if you acknowledge your sin, and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will save you from hell. You will not perish, but have everlasting life. You can flee to Christ from the wrath to come. As Alec Matthias said, the only way to flee from God is to flee to Him. And I'd like to say more about this, but I don't have time. My time is limited. But if the Lord is speaking to you at this moment, while listening to this recording, you're hearing this sermon, and the Lord is telling you, I'm talking to you. And you want to know more. You want to know more. What must I do? Well then, call me. Or send me an email. Or come and see me. Or go and see your pastor, wherever you live. Or speak to some devoted Christian. Someone who will share the good news with you. I'm willing to do it. Share the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus who came to save sinners from hell. Verse 18. With many other exhortations. In other words, the sermon's finished. Come and talk to me. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Verse 3. That's good news. Repent and be forgiven. Verse 6. That's good news. All flesh will see the salvation of God. Verse 17, there's good news. He'll take the wheat and put it in his barn. And unfortunately, it's only good news if you repent. If you don't repent, then there's bad news. Then there's bad news in verse 16. You'll be baptized with fire. Bad news in verse 17. You'll burn like chaff in unquenchable fire. Bad news, like in verse 9, you'll be chopped down and thrown into the fire. You see, King Herod didn't want to hear this. Especially when John told him, you are sinning because you're taking your brother's wife as your own. But his brother was still alive and he took his brother's wife. Verse 19. John rebuked him for this. And he was doubly guilty. Double guilt upon him because it's a double incest. Because this woman he took, her name, was, her name was Herodias, according to Mark 6. Herodias was the daughter of his half-brother Aristobulus. So it's his, his half-brother's daughter, so now he's committing incest. And then he has another half-brother called Philip. And this is Philip's wife. So it's double incest. Verse 1, you see his brother's name is Philip. Mark 6 verse 17 says the same in Leviticus 18 verse 16 and 20. Those verses tell us that, that what, what Herod did was, was commit incest. In other words, having sexual relations with family members. And then he did many other sins also. Verse, verse 19 at the end, for all the evil that Herod had done. And, and it's for this very reason that many people do not want to hear the gospel. Many people in our day, they like King Herod. They have no problem if you tell them, Jesus loves you and have a, has a wonderful, wonderful plan for your life. It is not a problem to them. But it becomes a problem when you, when you tell them that your sin is, a, is an abomination to God. Your sin grieves God. God hates your sin. And if you repent, if you leave your sin and believe in His Son, then God will forgive you. But if you continue in your sin, you will go to hell. And they hate that. So there you have the main reason why many people reject Jesus Christ. They hate it that Jesus tells them, if you want to be my disciple, well then you'll have to break up with your girlfriend and stop sleeping with her. 
Move out of the flat. Move into your own place. They hate it when Jesus tells them, the wild parties you enjoy, that must be something of the past. You need to repent of that if you're going to follow me. The life of getting drunk on Friday nights, that is not on. Smoking weed. They hate it when Jesus tells them, your career can no longer be number one. You're going to follow me. And if you tell them these things, they'll hate you. And they'll say, you're narrow-minded, you're a bigot. They'll, tell, they'll ignore you like a stop street. They'll push you out. They'll persecute you. And in some cases, they will even take the life of Christians. And that's exactly what happened with John the Baptist. In verse 20, he was locked up in prison. And then in Matthew 14, we see eventually he's beheaded. And Herod even goes further. He doesn't only kill John in the end. He, he's with those who kill Jesus. And Acts 4, 4 verse 27 says that. And yet for John, even though, even though John lost his head and lost his life, that was not the most important to him. Because John just wanted to get off stage. He wanted to get off stage. He wanted Jesus in the spotlight. That's why he said in John 3 verse 30, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And I think very often we do not have the same attitude. And we feel hurt. Because people do not acknowledge us and people do not thank us and people do not see us and people do not praise us and people do not like us, perhaps. And we feel hurt. But if Jesus was the most important to us, then we wouldn't care what people thought about us or said about us. As long as Jesus is at the center, as long as Jesus is in the spotlight. I don't care what people say. I don't care whether they're jealous of me, says the Apostle Paul. I don't care if they're preaching Jesus Christ and the gospel because they want to get me into greater trouble while I'm in prison for the gospel. I don't care. As long as Christ is preached, in this I rejoice. Number two, God's testimony. Verse 21 to 22. Now, quite recently I received some questions about the 2020 translation of the Afrikaans Bible. And many people have have questions as soon as a new Bible translation appears, they have a lot of questions and says, but this is they say this is not a true translation and so on. And people have wondered, is the 2020 Afrikaans translation, for instance, is that a reliable translation, especially in places where it differs from the old Afrikaans translation, the 1933 and 53 translation? Well, actually, what happens with translations, and even though you, you may not be Afrikaans, this might prove helpful to you. Um, it's really a, a difference, often, not always, but often it's a difference about Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Because the Old Testament written in Hebrew and Aramaic, New Testament in Greek. And so what, what translators want, there are many translators, the good ones, what they want is they want the oldest manuscripts and the most reliable manuscripts. And so that's where the the disagreement often comes and the differences often come. So the difference between the old Afrikaans translation and the 2020 translation when it comes to the, the manuscripts, the Greek and the Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts, the differences really are so minute, are so small, sometimes it's just the spelling of a name, but the differences are so small that it makes no difference to any doctrine of the Christian faith. It doesn't make a difference to the doctrines we believe as Christians, the teachings we believe. And then someone might ask, yes, but what about a verse like 1 John, chapter 5, verse 7 and 8? And so the old translation, it's like the King James, it says, The Father, there are three that testify, meaning testify that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. And there are three that testify, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. Then you come to the 2020 translation, and it says the three that testify, it only mentions these, it's the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now that's a great difference. Father, Word, and Spirit on the one hand, or Spirit, water, and blood on the other hand. And so people may ask, aren't you removing the Trinity, the, the doc doctrine of the Trinity from 1 John 5, verse 7 and 8, if we're going to accept the 2020 translation? And my answer is no, you're not removing the doctrine of the Trinity for two reasons. 
Reason number one, you'll find this truth in many other passages of Scripture. And reason number two, the translation that says there are three that testify, the water or the spirit, the water and the blood, that teaches nothing else than the Trinity. So let me show you that. Let me show you. Let me show you. After John baptized the people, verse 14, verse 1 to 14, we see John the Baptist baptizing the people of Israel. So after this, he then baptizes Jesus in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized. Now this is a baptism for sinners. It's a baptism of repentance. Verse 3 said that. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the question comes, well Jesus wasn't a sinner. So why in the world was Jesus baptized? If this is a baptism of repentance. And the reason is, Jesus associates with sinners. He says, I associate with you, and I've come to give you my righteousness. Uh, Matthew 3, verse 15. Let me be baptized, Jesus says to John, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So that's why he's baptized, because he stands in the place of sinners. And so Jesus' baptism is a picture of the cross, where God's judgment will come upon his Son like a flood. That is why in two places at least the New Testament refers to Jesus' death on the cross as a kind of baptism. I read one, one of those verses earlier in Luke 12 verse 50. But also in Mark 10 verse 38, Jesus speaks of his death as a kind of baptism. Where he says to James and John, are you able to be baptized with a baptism with which I will be baptized? And then the fact that Jesus comes out of the water again, he doesn't stay under the water, he doesn't drown. The fact that he comes out of the water again when he's baptized, that shows us that Jesus would conquer death. He would rise from the dead again, from this flood of God's baptism at Calvary. And so then baptism also becomes a picture not only of Jesus' death, but also of his resurrection. And that's what we see in Christian baptism, Colossians 2.12, Romans 6 verse 4. We rise again to a new life in Christ. And then, then also, Jesus' baptism reminds us of Noah's flood. Noah and the ark. So the flood comes, the flood of God's judgment upon the whole world during the time of Noah. And then Noah and his family, they are hidden in the ark and they're safe in this ark. And so the same for us. The flood of God's judgment that comes upon Jesus on Calvary. And if we hide in Christ and we hide in his death on the cross then it's like we are in the ark and the flood, we will not drown in the flood. And you see Peter making this connection in 1 Peter 3, verse 20 and 21. He sees a connection between baptism and Noah's flood, Noah and the ark. Uh, 1 Peter 3, verse 20 and 21, Peter writes, he says, uh, God's patience waited in the days of Noah when the ark was prepared, in which... That is, a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism becomes that picture, and then baptism also further it pictures that Jesus is the one who would come to purify his people. So baptism, Jesus is baptized, water purifies, and so the picture is, he is the one. This one that is now baptized, this is the one who has come to purify his people. Purify for himself a people, as Titus 2 verse 14 says. And so Christian, I want to ask you, when last have you come? When last did you come to this Christ? When last did you come to this Savior to be purified of your sins? Doesn't, doesn't John tell us that we should often come? For forgiveness and purification, 1 John 1 verse 9. And if you're not a Christian, you're an unbeliever. Why? Why does it not bother you? That your life and your conscience is soiled, it's filthy, it's dirty like a pig rolling in the mud. Why doesn't it bother you? Why doesn't it bother you? You will die a filthy man or woman. Filthy with muck and sin. Why doesn't it bother you? You will one day stand before the great judge of heaven and earth. Filthy. Repent of your sin. 
And then be baptized as a sign that your heart has been purified. Repent. Now please understand, it's not baptism that purifies your heart. It's the Lord who purifies your heart when you call upon Him. That's why the Bible says that when you are baptized, you should call upon the name of the Lord. You should call on Him for a clean conscience. Pray for a pure conscience. Uh, Acts 22 verse 16. Be baptized and wash away your sins while you call on the name of the Lord. Or 1 Peter 3 verse 22 that I just read. Baptism saves you not a removal of dirt from the body, but it speaks of a cleansing, a purification as you appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. It's His life in you. He brings you to new life. It's not baptism that, done it, that does it. But we do call on the Lord while, while we are baptized. And we do pray. We do pray, even as Jesus prayed at His baptism. We do pray that God would fill us with His Spirit anew. Fill us afresh with the Spirit. Acts 2 verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or Luke 11, verse 13. How much more will the Father not give the Spirit to those who ask Him? That's what Jesus did when He was baptized. Jesus prayed. He prayed. Verse 21. And He prayed especially and specifically that God would point Him out as the Messiah. And He prayed specifically that God would fill Him with the Holy Spirit. And send the Spirit upon Him. Verse 22. Verse 21. It says, when He was baptized, He was praying. And then the heavens were opened. So how do we know that's what Jesus prayed for? Well, because of the answer to prayer. Verse 22 is the answer to his prayer. The heavens are, are open, and God, it's like he rends the heavens, he tears the heavens apart, as Isaiah 64, 4 verse 1 says, where there's also a prayer. Tear the heavens apart, rend them, and come down. And so it's as if Jesus is praying, please God, please God, Father, come down, come down. Yes, these people have sinned against you. Yes, they are sinners, but please come down and forgive them and seal me, set your seal upon me and show everyone I am the Messiah. I am the Anointed One. I am the Savior who can save. So it's literally Jesus being sealed here as the Messiah. As John 6.27 says, God has set His seal upon Him. And then you might ask, but, but why? Why did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? He's God. Why does he need the Spirit? If he wanted to, as God, he could, he could just do miracles out of his divine nature. And he is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He created all things were created through him. Come on. Why does he need the Spirit? Jesus chose voluntarily, willingly. Jesus chose to do nothing in his own strength. To do everything only in dependence upon his Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why he wouldn't turn the stones into bread in the next chapter. Because he waited upon his Father. That is why he says, Jesus himself says, I drive cast out demons by the Spirit of God. He didn't do it out of his divine nature, though he is God and he is man. He waited for the, for the Father's command and he did it in dependence on the Spirit. That's why Acts 10 verse 38 says God baptized him with a, or God, God empowered him by the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and with power and did all these miracles. That is why Philippians 2 verse 6 says that he left his heavenly glory, all the riches and glory of heaven. Doesn't mean he stopped being God. Just means he said, I will not do anything except in dependence upon my Father and by the power of the Spirit. And so that's why the Spirit came on his human nature in the Jordan River when he was baptized. And he even says it in chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor Proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of the sight of the blind, and so on. So he did miracles by the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit came upon him so that everyone could see this is what this is he. 
This is it. This is him. This is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. He's anointed with the Spirit. He's anointed as our prophet, priest, and king. He is the Christ. And that is why the Spirit didn't come upon him invisibly. When you receive the Spirit, it's invisible. You don't see the Spirit. Here the Spirit came upon him visibly. In bodily form, it says, like a dove. Why like a dove? Because a dove is upright, innocent. Matthew 10, verse 16. Be innocent as dove also. doves, Jesus says. Harmless as doves. And so it's with the Spirit. He's innocent. He's upright. And then this, this dove, when he comes over the waters of baptism in the Jordan, a dove and lots of water reminds you of, of Genesis 1, the second verse of the Bible. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then this reminds you of Noah's ark and the flood. Again, a dove and lots of water. Noah sends out the dove and it returns eventually. Uh, if you read the passage, after a few times it returns and it's got an olive leaf in its mouth to show there's new life. After the flood, after the judgment, there's new life. And so the picture here, where we see the Spirit coming like a dove and all the water here in the Jordan River, the picture is the Spirit wants to show everyone this one, Jesus, this one. He's the one who will bring the new creation. He's the one who will bring new life, like after Noah's flood. New creation, like in Genesis 1, there's the old creation. He brings the new creation. And then the Father also testifies. He says, this is my son. It's like he's saying, this is the one. Here's the Messiah. Here's the Savior. This is my beloved son. You are my son, Psalm 2 verse 7. You are the beloved. You are the anointed one. Isaiah 42 verse 1. The beloved son. The beloved servant. Now, it's not that Jesus only, be, it's not that Jesus becomes the Son of God when he's baptized. No, already at his birth, he was called the Son of the Most High. It's, it's rather that at his baptism, the Father shows everyone, this is the one, he is my Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Like in John 12, Jesus says, the voice from heaven didn't come for my sake, but for your sake, so that everyone can know, he is the one. As if the Father says, this is my unique Son, the special one. Just like an earthly father and son share the same nature, so I and my Son, we share the same nature. My Son and I, we are one. Like Jesus later on said, I and the Father are one. And my Son is God. Just as I am God, my Son is God. He shares the same nature as I. It's exactly how the Jews would understand the Son of God. They would understand it to mean God. That's why they wanted to kill him. Because he called himself the Son of God. He made himself equal to God by calling God his own Father. John 5 verse 17 and 18, John 10 33. John 1 verse 1 calls him God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 is the exact imprint of God's nature. So the Father is saying all these things. The Father is as if he's saying, I love this Son of mine. And I've loved him from eternity. Because God is love. And he's always been that, which means there must be another person. So can you see? Can you see that the testimony of the Spirit, that is water, or the testimony of the Spirit here at Jesus' baptism. The testimony of water, that's the baptism. The testimony of blood, that's the cross. It doesn't remove the Trinity from 1 John 5, verse 7 and 8. When John says, there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. It doesn't remove the Trinity. No, it testifies to the Trinity. Because at the water that testifies baptism, the, the Trinity is there. The Trinity is there. It's the Son being baptized. The Spirit comes upon him. And the Father speaks from heaven. That's the Trinity. 
or when Jesus dies. The spirit, the water, the blood, the blood. That's, that testifies Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. It doesn't remove the Trinity. It testifies to it. Because when Jesus dies, you see the Trinity there. Hebrews 9 verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, so that's the death of Jesus, there's the Son, Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself, there you have the Holy Spirit, without blemish to God. There's the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit. In the same way that the three, the, the three persons of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is involved in every area of your and my life. He's involved in your creation. The Father commanded that you be created. The Son, He was the one who actually created you and the Spirit was the one who gave you life. That you find in Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit hovering over the waters, and God said, that's the Word, the Son. John 1 verse 1. And God spoke. We see that's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, Word with God, Word was God. And then I already quoted where it says, everything was created through him, the word. The spirit created you. God blew into Adam's nostrils. Job 33 verse 4, the spirit of God created me. Psalm 104 verse 30, we see the spirit comes and he brings new life. When God withdraws, they die, creatures, but when the spirit comes, they live. The Trinity is involved in your salvation. The, the Father chose you, the Son died for you, and the Spirit regenerated you. The Spirit makes you God's child. You are sealed with the Spirit to show you are God's property. Go and read Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 14. Galatians 4 verse 4 to 6 if you're taking notes. Titus 3 verse 5 and 6. 1 Peter 1 verse 2. All those passages. They show that the Trinity is involved in our salvation. The Trinity is involved in your baptism. You are baptized in the name, singular, in other words, one God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons. You're baptized into the name of the Trinity. And by, the, by doing so, you show that His life is in you and you live through Him. He's involved in your life as a believer, in your being part of the church. The Father has given the Son as head of the church, and the Holy Spirit makes you a part of the body of Christ. You are baptized in one spirit into one body. In Ephesians 1, we see the Father giving the Son as the head of the church. Ephesians 4, verse 46, we read of one Lord, one faith, or one Lord, one spirit, and one God and Father of us all. There you have the Trinity in, it, in the context of being part of the church. And then the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit give us spiritual gifts so we can serve in the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 to 6. And then the Trinity is personally involved in your life, also in your personal relationship with God. So we draw near to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 2 verse 18, when we pray. Is that not true? Is that not how it works? Or what about the Son? The Son comes to the Father and He asks, please give me the Spirit. And it's the Son who pulls the Spirit out into our hearts. John 14, 26, 15, 26, Acts 2, verse 33. And so you see, the Trinity now dwells in you and lives in you and is always with you. And you experience more of Him and more of His love. Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 19. Go and read that. You'll see the Trinity. You'll see the Trinity. The Son asking the Father for the Spirit and pouring out the Spirit upon us. You'll see the Father and the Son living in us and the Spirit living in us. John 14, verse 23. And then specifically, you feel the Father, you feel His love near, and the Spirit, or the Son, the, the grace of the Son, and then the Holy Spirit who is near to you. Second Corinthians 13, verse 14. May the, may the love of God and the, or the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. 
And then your, your personal relationship with the Lord. We see as we pray, as I just mentioned, you see the involvement of the Trinity. We pray in the Spirit. The Son intercedes for us. We pray to the Father. And so really the spotlight is not merely on Jesus. The spotlight is on every person of the Trinity. And yet we focus on Jesus because Jesus, it is he who reveals the Father to us. And that's why the Spirit also, he wants to open our eyes to see Jesus. The Spirit comes and he glorifies Jesus. He shows you more of the glory of Jesus. And it's a pity, really. But Jesus is not always in the spotlight for us. Jesus is not always in the spotlight, even among those who call themselves Christians. And I've seen this in my ministry. When I share the gospel with people, new people come to our church. I go and see them. They're interested in membership. I want to know, are they saved? I ask them for their salvation testimony. And Jesus is shockingly absent. So they mention words like grace, and they mention words like God, and they speak of words like forgiveness, but there's no Jesus. It's as if they think they can come to the Father without Jesus. It's as if they think they can be forgiven without Jesus. And so what Martin Lloyd-Jones said is true of these people. There's a great deal of so-called Christianity which is quite Christless. And so Jesus again, my brother and sister, Jesus again, he needs to take center stage. Not only in our preaching and our singing of hymns and in our worship services and so-called religious activities. Jesus must take center stage. Jesus must be in the spotlight in our thoughts and in our conversations and our friendships and in our families, in our marriages and in our everyday life. In other words, Jesus again should be in the spotlight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing this word to our hearts. And I do pray that you would make this a blessing to those who listen to it, even the recording later on. And pray that you would help us to have our eyes fixed on Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of the Most High, Jesus the Eternal God, Jesus the Lord of Glory. Amen.